today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. In the wake of the Danforth shooting and and what has happened, and and of course we've been witnessing over the course of the week the investigation unfold, and memorials, uh, funerals, so on and so forth. So where do we go from here? And of course the debate always turns to handguns. Now this was already an issue in Toronto prior uh, to the shooting incident on uh, the Danforth, uh, obviously a week ago, uh, this coming Sunday. Uh, but where are we with that? What can individuals, individual municipalities do? What can the province do? What can the feds do? What do they really want to do? Uh, Tim Harper has a great column in the Toronto Star today. He's their national affairs columnist, and the it is entitled, Is a Handgun Ban Legally or Politically Complicated for the Liberals? And let's bring Tim in now. Tim, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Hi, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing very well. You? Very good, thanks. It seems like in some cases, depending on who you talk to, this is quite cut and dry. Why is it such a divisive issue? Why does no politician really want to touch this? Um, well, you know, this, uh, I, I will confess, I'm, I'm old enough that I covered the great gun debate uh, that led to the uh, Liberal Gun Registry in the 90s. And I think there's a... Um, there's a, a history out there, uh, particularly among the liberals, that if they move too far on gun control, there's a backlash. They uh, they believe that the uh, long gun registry in the 90s cost them uh, a government and put them out in the uh, political wilderness. I think there might be some revisionist history to that, but it is politically uh, fraught. And I can tell you, just anecdotally, we are only we're talking about handguns. We're not talking about uh, long firearms that are used uh, in rural and remote areas. But you just put out a column, like I did, uh, wondering why we don't have a handgun ban, and you should see the social media um, explosion. It just lights up because politicians, the liberals, know that uh, moving on a handgun ban will be taken uh, by the pro-gun lobby as the first step to taking all our guns away. Uh, and this is a very... Uh, well-organized uh, lobby that uh, can cause rioting. So there's a political uh, downside uh, to doing it from the liberal perspective. But at this point right now, I would argue that there's a greater upside. Uh, it, it is complicated both legally and politically, but if there's political will, it can be done. It seems odd that, uh, I mean, can you really compare a handgun ban to the long gun registry? And at the end of the day, uh, one is more geared around crime, and you can see how one would irritate people in, in the foreign, the other would irritate people in rural areas. So um, at the end of the day, can these two topics be discussed together? Are they confused? Uh, no, you can't. Uh, there's, there's... The debate over handguns has really nothing to do yeah. uh, with the, the debate over long guns. Uh, and there really there is no debate over long guns. But I'm not suggesting that we're dealing with logic here, Scott. What I'm saying <laughs> is I know uh, this lobby gears up and it gears up fast. And uh, any move, uh, you, you know, if you're living in rural Saskatchewan, uh, I don't know why you would need a handgun. Um, yeah. If you, if you uh, hunt and you've got uh, long arms... Uh, uh, the handgun would seem rather superfluous to me. I don't know why you'd want one. Uh, and John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, did raise the question this week that, that should be raised by everybody. Why would you need a handgun in the city of Toronto mm. or Hamilton or uh, Vancouver, Montreal, any urban center? Why are there handguns there? 
Um, so, you know, the, to your point, it's very cut and dry. Handguns are one thing. Long arms legitimately needed by sure. Or shooters, hunters, a totally different thing. But they get conflated immediately in this debate. Does the gun lobby use one to promote the other? Uh, we know how strong the gun lobby is in the U.S. How big is it here? Well, it's it's actually uh, uh, much uh, more muscular and polished than it was even five or ten years ago. You know, there's there's you know just as there's no Second Amendment right here in Canada, there's no NRA type lobby here in Canada. But it is a very effective uh, lobby group, um, and it, it's uh, when I say it's more polished, the they they are making arguments that I can't agree with. Uh, but they are using uh, statistical analysis um, and linking to uh, media reports and so on, instead of you know just uh, going on a, a TV panel and blarging about how everybody's going to take our guns away. Um, and, and, you know, one of the largest uh, and most influential pro-gun blogs and lobbies uh, is being done right uh, out of Toronto. So it's not being done from, you know, uh, Red Deer, Alberta. It's being done from Toronto. So there are uh, a lot of gun adherents in urban areas. And, um, you know, they, they, they fear that if the, the handgun is taken away, that they won't have any uh, recourse to any legal weapons uh, in this city. Uh, there used to be the rumor for the longest time that the majority of these guns that committed crimes in, in Ontario, Canada, were from the United States. Uh, you know, numbers as high as 75, even 90 percent, I heard at one time. Uh, now we're hearing new reports over the last week or so that it's more like 50 percent. And there was a lot of confusion as to whether uh, this gun used on the Danforth, where it had originated. It seemed to flip-flop back and forth for a bit. Now that it appears that these guns are uh, coming from Canada as much, and certainly not as much from the United States. How much does that fuel this fire? Well, yeah. Because they, they used to always say, well, they're not our guns. It's not our problem here. It's the guns, it's the border. You're, the guns are getting across sure. the border. Yeah, sure. We used to be focused on uh, gun runners from the U.S. and, yeah. and, and uh, smuggling. But, uh, no, you're right. The, the police chief here, uh, Mark Saunders, this week said, that 50% of guns used in crimes here are domestically sourced. They, they were bought uh, in, in Canada, often bought legally, and then sold uh, on a black market. There was a study in British Columbia that showed uh, 60% of uh, all guns used in, uh, in crimes in British Columbia over a period of time were sourced in Canada. So that's one thing about, you know, a handgun ban. A handgun ban has worked in other jurisdictions. Most notably, everybody talks about the Australian experience. Uh, but there are so many of them on uh, on the streets right now that if the Liberal government did show the courage to uh, move ahead on a, on a handgun ban, initially there might not uh, be a, a big downturn in, uh, in crime and gun stats because there are so many of them already in the country. Um, you'd have to go through a you know, a, a transition uh, period. You'd have to uh, look at exemptions. Who needs some security guards? What, what have you? There would be an amnesty, uh, and there will be, quite honestly, a uh, uh, great number of uh, of owners of handguns who are not going to take advantage of an amnesty and give up their guns. So, you know, a handgun ban would choke off the future supply. But there's an awful lot of guns uh, in Canadian cities right now. As you said, when the police chief of Toronto says 50% of the guns used are sourced from Canada, how can the government not react? 
Yeah, and you know, as you well know, there's, there is legislation uh, still that hasn't been passed, uh, Bill C-71, which was a rather tepid uh, attempt at uh, uh, closing some, some um, gun loopholes uh, that had been left by the, the previous conservative government. Most of the, uh, the guns that are now on the streets here that are, uh, were purchased legally uh, came about as a result of uh, the easing of regulations by the Stephen Harper government. The Liberals promised in 2015 to toughen that up, and they actually did talk about handguns during the 2015 campaign. But they, they, were, they were slow to act and, and very um, tentative in, in this legislation. Uh, the legislation that uh, is, is awaiting final approval really would do nothing to keep uh, handguns out of the uh, hands of criminals. One of the major uh, criticisms of it is that uh, it, it just appears to create more paperwork for legal owners and uh, legal gun sellers, but does nothing to address guns and gangs in, in, in any of the urban areas. So th- they have an opportunity uh, to, to uh, have that legislation amended uh, to deal with handguns. It's there. It's, it's before the, uh, the House is going to the Senate. Uh, so there's an opportunity for them to act. And, and they have said, the government has said that they're seriously considering this. We'll, we'll see. When we'll, we'll see fairly quickly. I would assume many Canadians thought our gun laws were already pretty tough. I mean, they're obviously a, a lot more strict than they are in the United States. What else can we really do? Well, there's, uh, there are provisions in this legislation, for example, to tighten up um, uh, the, the number of guns that are sold. Uh, there's a problem with uh, what you call straw purchases, right? Somebody gets a, uh, a legal uh, uh, weapon permit uh, and, then, and then buys more uh, guns than he or she would possibly ever need. And then they uh, end up selling them. And then they end up selling Boy, that certainly uh, doesn't do well, much for well, the image of the responsible gun owner, though, does it? No. And the other thing is, there's um, there's questions, and, and the public safety minister Ralph Goodell has also talked about this theft from uh, gun vendors. Uh, uh, you know, there was an example in Saskatchewan of a, a theft of about twenty guns by clipping one security. Um, uh, clip in place uh, that was holding all these guns uh, in security. Right. There, there will be there will be new regulations on storage uh, and um, security in stores and so on. But you know, th- this is all nibbling uh, around the edges, right? Uh, exactly. Will this all be lip service? Other governments have acted boldly, uh, and, and and you know, you know, look at Australia uh, that I cited. Uh, if you're worried about an urban rural split in this country. I mean, there's Australia has a, a huge urban-rural split, but they were able to uh, outlaw uh, handguns, and they, they went years without any gun um, uh, crime at all. So it can be done. Uh, and, you know, I would argue that, it, that the Liberals, instead of worried about that traditional backlash uh, in uh, rural ridings and, and then uh, predominantly in Western Canada, should probably take a look at polling data that shows that uh, you know their core constituency of younger voters and women. Uh, there is polling data out there that shows they would overwhelmingly support a handgun ban. So it would be hard to imagine, despite the effort of the pro-gun lobby, it would be hard to imagine there would be any concerted pushback uh, against this move. It's hard for me to uh, imagine the conservatives, no matter how uh, pro-gun many in that 
caucus are, would, would get up and, and argue against a handgun ban. So, um, you know, we've had a lot of tipping points. This might be a tipping point, but, you know, I get a little cynical. There's been a number of tipping points before, and nothing's happened. So, uh, but I'll, I'll It, it just seems very odd to me that we can't separate these two issues uh, between those that are considered to be violent weapons and what are considered to be either pleasure, uh, uh, sport shooting, or, or as you said, in rural areas, long guns and such. It doesn't seem to me that it would be that hard to craft a law that keeps the people in rural areas and the gun collectors happy, but still makes a dent in handguns. It, it, I don't know. It just seems to be all muddied and, paint over with this, and painted over with the same brush. Can't we, can't, can it be easily defined what's good and what's bad in guns? Well, you, you get it. I get it. Uh, but uh, the, go on the, uh, the gunblog.ca and, and see what's being said on that uh, pro-gun lobby about a, a potential handgun ban. Uh, which is being called the, uh, the the biggest threat to uh, uh, sports shooters and uh, gun collectors and gun competitors across the country. Uh, this is the biggest threat we, we've ever faced. They're going to take away our firearms. So that's how you get this lobby and that, and that voting block uh, amped up. As I said earlier, it's not based in logic. It's based in emotion. But uh, this has always been the history here. It's good. It's going to take a government with enough courage to just tune that lobby out uh, and make the argument uh, concisely as you just did. Uh, there's there are there is legitimate need uh, for uh, long arms uh, in in parts of this country. There's no legitimate need for handguns in cities. We need those kids that were rallying in the United States. They seem to have a better yeah. handle on this than anyone does. Yeah, they were the, the Parkland kids. They were very very good. Exactly. Yeah. But then what happened to that, Tim? Yeah, I know, I know, but you, you, of course, in the U.S., you're you're facing a much yeah. more uh, yeah. uh, deeply entrenched gun culture, right? The, the Second Amendment rights and so on. Um, it's a much tougher yeah. uh, battle in the U.S. than it is here. But uh, Scott, I'll just tell you, you know, you look at the pictures of the uh, the ten year old uh, girl and the eighteen year old young woman who were murdered, and you got to figure, man, this is a tipping point. I live I live three blocks from there, and I was there on Sunday night, and you know, I was at the vigil the other night, and People want something done. What's the feeling in that neighborhood now, today? What's it like there? Um, it's it's coming back, and it will come back. Um, you know, there's a huge jazz festival in my neighborhood tonight, and they, they've, they've put new sec- uh, more security up there than they would. Uh, I, I'm not going to lie. I think there, there are people in this city who are uh, obviously a little bit more vigilant about what's going on in, in, in their surroundings. Uh, but no, the Danforth uh, will come back after the vigil on uh, Wednesday. A couple of us went out to dinner, and the restaurant was very busy. And um, you know, you wouldn't have known that anything has happened except for the bullet holes in the window of the second cup and the mm. uh, and the scaffolding uh, or, or the boards put up where uh, windows were smashed, and the uh, and the teddy bears and the flowers and the uh, the, the messages of of hope uh, that everybody was writing. So, I mean, it's still there. It's still very fresh, but it'll come back. Is a handgun ban legally or politically complicated for liberals? In the Toronto Star, it's by Tim Harper, National Affairs columnist. Tim, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Always good to talk to you, Scott. Thanks for calling. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, uh, I... uh... 
We've been doing an awful lot on Donald Trump because it seems every single day he says something that we have to cover. And, uh, well, that's our job. I'm trying to stay away from uh, the titillating stuff because I think we all know what the Trumpster's all about and uh, his womanizing ways. So I I really don't think there's anything new there. So when we talk about tapes from Michael Cohen, his his former lawyer, um, I'm less likely to be caring about the ones about Stormy Daniels or the other Playboy model that apparently he had some affair with. Um, Because, you know, as screwed up as it is or whatever we think about it, uh, that's his personal life. And I don't give a crap, to be totally honest. He can do uh, he can cheat on his wife all he wants. He can do whatever he wants. That's up to him. Um, That being said, when it starts to involve policy and the running of the country, uh, that's, of course, when it crosses a fine line. Now we're hearing that those tapes could uh, hold some very key evidence in regard to the Russian collusion investigation. To talk about all of this, Michael Diamond is with us, conservative political pundit. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Glad to be here. So, again, when these tapes first surfaced and and, uh, the lawyer that's involved in this... um, uh, Michael Avenatti, uh, obviously, you know, he's on his own sort of collision course. He's trying to build a career for himself. He seems to be in the in the media in the U.S. Uh, quite a bit on, on the whole porn star angle. That's one thing. But is there something else on these tapes, in these tapes, that could be coming out that could be a lot more damaging to Trump than who he's sleeping with? Well, there very well could be, but I would actually like to get uh, a point in on your intro. Uh, you know, his personal life is his personal life, and that that is fair, and people are entitled and allowed to make mistakes. Uh, but it's an important character uh, issue here. And so someone who will lie to their wife, lie to the mother of their children, is someone who will also do other bad things in governments, perhaps. Uh, so, so although not related to his performance in government, it's an important sign. And we, we, we do see that with politicians over and over again. If they lie to one person, they lie to the nation. So I think it is important, maybe not impacting the government to the same extent, but something we should pay attention. Character does matter. That's why someone like Ronald Reagan was such a good president. Character and George, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, that it's very important. Now, uh, what else is in these tapes? This is going to be, you know, uh, this is gonna the, the Gong Show is gonna continue, and uh, with Michael Cohn now having hired Lanny Davis, uh, the very annoying uh, but uh, really talented in many ways spin master as his lawyer. Uh, this guy uh, has been spinning for the Clintons for my entire life, it seems. So it, it's uh, the the Hollywood value, the show value is gonna continue, and the nation should cry. Has it got to the point where it's now just so obvious, although we really have no idea what's going on, it's pretty clear to most something's going on? Oh, absolutely. You know, if there's smoke, there's fire, as they say. Uh, uh, the more someone says there's nothing to see here, there's very well something to see here. So. I know. He keeps talking about no collusion, but I've never heard a person who, who mentions the word collusion more than he has. It, well, exactly. And, you know, uh, and it goes to be a witch hunt. And, and look, uh I guess there's shades of gray, gray within what uh, collusion could mean. So there, there will be shades of gray here, uh, perhaps, and we'll find out that there's stuff that might be unsavory, but not necessarily illegal, or it could be very well illegal, and it could implicate the president. Either way, it's unsavory. 
What can pin him here, Michael? Uh, you know, apparently he said initially, and this is, again, I guess we'll have to be clarified with these tapes, uh, that he didn't know anything about a meeting with anybody in regard to Russia and his son and any of this. Will any of, the, any of these tapes that come out clarify this? Yeah, well, that's where he could get into trouble because, you know, as they say, it's uh, the cover-up, not not the scandal that will uh, get you. So if there's if there's a scandal, you know, if there was wrongdoing, you can survive that lying is the problem. So contradiction, contradiction is what is going to be key here. If he uh, if something comes out that contradicts himself, that's a problem. When will we know more? I mean, when these first tapes came out in regard to his uh, his sexual uh, um, his sexual uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, his sexual misconduct. Yeah, let's go with. Thank you, Michael. It didn't really seem like that far of a reach, did it? Uh, when this first came out, and his with with the tapes regarding sexual misconduct, everybody's kind of okay. Here we go. Here we go. And then, of course, the lawyer was saying, "Oh, there's tons of tapes. There's tons of tapes. This guy taped everybody that came into the office." So, will we hear of those? Will Cohen go before um, Mueller and and be questioned on any of this? Where is this going? Yeah, look, I think he will. I think uh, we'll see. You know, we'll see an attempt to block that and stop that. And that's one of the reasons the Supreme Court, uh, recent Supreme Court uh, announcement, was so important. So there will be an effort, but it's very well something that can become public domain. Uh, and when will people realize that you don't get in trouble for conversations that aren't recorded? Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, any sort of timeline here? Like it seems as if. There were times when this seemed to be slowing down. The Mueller investigation seemed to be slowing down. Many were saying, what's the point of doing this? There doesn't appear to be anything there. Is this heating up? Is Can he feel this tightening around his neck? You know, he probably can because I think he truly believes that uh, uh, there's nothing nothing to see here, as he's uh, made clear time and again. I think that's actually something he, he holds, holds to be true. But... Um, on timing, I think you're going to see this very similar to the uh, probe into Hillary Clinton and email gate, uh, where you know it's going to ebb and flow and ebb and flow, and you're going to hear something and you're going to hear nothing and you're going to hear something and you're going to hear nothing, and then one day you're going to have James Comey at a uh, press uh, at a uh, at a podium a few days before an election saying that there's something to see here, and uh, I think that's it will be a similar uh, spin of events and it will come as a surprise at a moment's notice. What about the lies, Michael? Um, you know, this this president started his campaign uh, with the narrative and framing the narrative of fake news. Don't believe what you read. Don't believe what you hear. Uh, you know, the the media, the press is out to get us. It's the en- they are the enemy, and 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 sort of started painting. Um, all of this mistrust and, and, and people that we normally trusted, all of a sudden we're not. Uh, and then, of course, over time we realized it's not everybody else that's lying. It's, it's him. Um, and we've certainly seen a lot of that lately, I thought, coming to a head with the whole Putin summit thing. But is it that the lying is increasing and we now have more proof of it how is that going to play out well, even with just, the base just like new well here's how it's playing out with the base this is a rather shocking and upsetting thing um guess whose approval ratings are going up in the united states right now yeah. among republicans 
Vladimir Putin. This is really sad from the party of uh, Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush, who said about Ronald Reagan, said about uh, Vladimir Putin that he looks into his eyes and he sees three things: KGB. So it's you know a departure. One thing here in Canada, I mean, I think conservatives can be really proud of. Stephen Harper's interactions with this evil man in Russia, Vladimir Putin. And in the United States, we now have a a large group of Republicans who would probably vote for Vladimir Putin over Hillary Clinton. How does this change? And I mean, you think of Trump, he's over 70 or 70 in and around there. Uh, People of his generation remember post-World War II. And if anybody chatted the sort of communist rhetoric that he has been chatting or support for Russia, they'd be blacklisted. And there's veterans that fought for this over the last several decades, uh, fought for America and allies on this issue. And I realize that Russia is not a true communist government in the sense of the word anymore, but try to convince, you know, people uh, observing uh, Vladimir Putin and, and his KGB roots of that. How does this man not get branded a communist sympathizer, which 20, 30 years ago would have killed him? Well, you know, it's a, I think actually we can borrow a line from Hillary Clinton here. It's not communist, it's not a communist, communism here. It's, uh, that he's Putin's puppet, as she said. And is that the issue? Uh, and, and Donald Trump is just, he's a charismatic leader. He's a great communicator. Don't listen to what folks say. The man is brilliant. And often those, when you have a whole lot of people who don't like, like the politicians, like this guy, he can't communicate. He seems like an idiot. Those are going to be some of the best communicators. Uh, and we saw that here in Ontario with uh, Rob Ford, fantastic communicator. That's where the comparison are going to end between those two individuals, uh, frankly. But um, yeah, Donald Trump, he's able to talk himself out of things and around things. So that's why he is able to, to do this. But, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton did have a point, And I think your point's excellent. Um, you know, the Republican Party, Ronald Reagan and um, Mikhail Gorbachev, trust but verify. There's no trust but verify going on in the relationship between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. Was the Putin summit a tipping point? And I mean, we've been saying this forever, but Teflon Don, nothing seems to stick. Things that would would have uh, crumbled past leaders, this guy just keeps on rolling. And the reason that I say that, Michael, is because, you know, we always view Trump as strong. He's a bully. He's a bull in a china shop. He he believes in, in confrontation, putting his opponent back on his heels, keeping them um, off balance, but a strong bully type of character. Uh, you know, he even left the queen waiting 12 minutes. But when he's with Putin, it's the reverse. We're view, he's viewed as weak. He's viewed as Putin's puppet or a poodle. Um, are, are people recognizing that, that he's a tough guy and that's why everybody likes him, but he seems to be very subservient and very weak towards Putin? Well, it's certainly a, a strange change in positioning for him. But again, all you have to do is there's only one approval rating that Donald Trump needs to care about, and that's among folks who were ever open to voting for him. And among those folks, approval for Vladimir Putin is going up. Hmm. How how are we supposed to how do how do we supposed to receive that when it appears that 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 people are starting to like Vladimir Putin? 
it's frankly, I think it's it's devastating. This man, uh, you know, as pointed out to Donald Trump in a Republican presidential primary debate, uh, is a murderer. He's a tyrant. He's a dictator. Uh, he's someone who I think, you know, George W. Bush and Stephen Harper had the number correctly. And as a Canadian conservative, I'm very proud of, of the way Stephen Harper dealt with Vladimir Putin. And it's, uh, it's very sad. It's very sad to see that somebody occupying the office of Ronald Reagan from the party of Ronald Reagan, who who knew how to handle bad guys uh george w bush also uh to be into this you know in love affair with putin is uh is sh- as shocking as it is disgusting is he keeping a handle on this you, you said i mean his popularity within his own party is through the roof he's he's main he's managing to change people's worldview of things is is the momentum continuing or is any of this stuff, whether it's the lies, the tapes, the, the, the Putin meeting, what have you, which seemed odd. He came back from the Putin meeting and everybody was furious. So his first reaction was to, you know, try to, to try to organize another one. Uh, at the end of the day, is, is his momentum continuing? Will we know that until after the results of the midterm elections? Look, I mean, Donald Trump's a tough guy to pull, as we saw with the uh, last election. Yeah, you don't want to predict uh, it. So it, prediction, predicting is hard, but I think, yeah, politically, political success and governing success or the success of doing what's right are different things. So his political success, I think, has been continuing, and we're seeing that, you know, he he has had a the political successes, and uh, so that's a very different thing, though. All right. What about uh, the tapes, the Michael Cohen tapes, the lawyer tapes? What will come out of this? Will this is there something in there that could actually finish Trump off? Yes, um, absolutely. Again, the cover up. So if there's if there's a clear contradiction, that could be devastating. You know, it's as, as we say, it's the. Not the scandal, it's the cover-up. And so a contradiction will be very, very hard for him. Nobody seems to care in his base or the people that support him about any of this that's happened to date. Will they care about this? You know? They may very well not. You know, uh, uh, As he pointed out, he's so popular with his, uh, his folks that he could go on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and not uh, lose any support. That being said, will that matter? Will voters have a say? Will the law just take over this situation well, well exactly the, the house of representatives and the senate might have a very different view of that that contradiction and that scandal and uh be able to actually sell it publicly so that's what might be the tipping point here and uh that it might soften the base a little but that there'll be a movement from folks who are not part of that base and obviously you're going to see the republicans fighting to keep him alive right some but, uh, you know, I mean... Um, are they willing to fall on the sword, though, for the for the country? Look, the Republicans are much better. Uh, they're better Americans than Democrats, and I've thought that for a long time. Um, if you look at when, when Nixon finally resigned, it was that the chairman of the Republican National Committee, George Herbert Walker Bush, and Senator Barry Goldwater, the party's 1964 presidential candidate, and some other party luminaries, went to see the president to tell him to resign, 
because many of them who were in the Senate or the Congress would have voted against him on the articles of impeachment and the trial. They told him that on Bill Clinton, not a single Democrat voted to impeach the president who broke the law, a ser- two serious laws, um, and was impeached by the House of Representatives for that. Not a single U.S. Uh, Democratic senator voted to impeach him. And so what, I, what I'm, I guess my point is, and I do have one, that Republicans will be more likely to impeach a Republican president who broke the law than Democrats ever would because Republicans are just better. Hmm. Will Mueller call Michael Cohen to testify uh, considering all of this? Um, I would think so. We'll have to see what sort of uh, uh, tactics and negotiations they're you know, willing to use with each other. But I absolutely think that it's something we will probably see. How long is the Mueller investigation going to drag out? Look, I mean, look at the uh, Star investigation that dragged out until uh, until the independent counsel was ready to uh, uh, report. So it could go on for a very long time uh, if uh, required. Uh, the president can try and stop that. As well. What do you think is going to happen in the midterms? I think that if the Democrats are foolish enough to drag their heels on the Supreme Court confirmation, that you will see huge evangelical Christian turnout, and you will see a returned Republican majority to both houses. Wow. Uh, Should the Democrats be concentrating more on their next move and less on the president? Democrats should absolutely just, you know, let him govern and be an effective opposition. But instead, they're talking about, I don't know what they're even talking about. They have no fresh blood, no new leadership. The fact that Nancy Pelosi, who was elected Speaker of the House of Representatives in 2006, and she's been out of that job for a very long time now, is still leading their congressional uh, delegation in the House, is just, it's appalling. And they need need a refresh. Uh, And when they're coming with candidates, you know, when we're talking about, is it going to be Joe Biden or is it going to be Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, when when those guys were uh, can, should have been candidates for president, uh, Seinfeld was in its first year. Yeah, I was just thinking that. I was thinking, is there any young blood there? Uh, you know, it's very, very different from politics in Canada, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah, look at it. I mean, the three leaders of our major political parties are, uh, are you know, uh, in their 30s. I yeah. guess the prime minister are a bit older, but... Um, it's uh, completely different, and and no one's going to be looking at uh, you know looking at Joe Biden to uh, lead, lead the Democrats in the next election as the presidential candidate. Would be like when Trudeau leaves the Liberals, thinking you know what we need that Paul Martin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And B- Biden seemed too old last time, but anyway, uh, Michael Diamond's been with us, conservative political pundit, talking about the Michael Cohen tapes and of course what that means for Donald Trump moving forward. Michael, as always, thank you for the time. Great to chat again. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You might remember uh, just a a bizarre accident, not accident, situation, I guess, uh, that happened to Brandon Clark. He is the son of former councillor Brad Clark, who's now, uh, by the way, running in the next election uh, for Ward 9. And it was just a a bizarre scenario, and we were all sitting on the edge of our seats waiting uh, for his recovery. And and the great news is is that uh, Brandon is as good as he is, as good now as he was uh, way back when, and now is using this opportunity to give back. So uh, introducing you to Brandon Clark, he is the survivor of a shooting and lived to tell. Brandon, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me, Scott. Nice to talk to you. So let's start off, first of all, and tell everybody what you're doing. Oh, what I'm doing right now is just uh, 
uh, working at the Fasco full time right now and uh, just enjoying myself and thankful to, to be alive and to have been helped at the General Hospital. And uh, right now I'm working on the strides for the general, trying to raise funds and uh, get the word out for the fundraiser that is the strides for the general. Uh, it's a 5K race or also a walk or a 10K race down at the Hamilton Bayfront, and it uh, raises funds for the Hamilton General Hospital. And we're expected to hopefully surpass over a million dollars raised this year. And dates, times, logistics of how we can find out more about this. Uh, just online, uh, Strides for the General on the Hamilton Health Sciences website. Uh, it's September 15th, and uh, it's at the Hamilton Bayfront Park. So how is your health now? How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I'm feeling awesome. I'm probably better than ever, actually. Better than before everything happened. So tell us what happened. Um, uh, to make, I guess, a long story short, well, not really a long story, actually. Uh, I was just out with some friends, and we went back to a friend's apartment, and uh, after a couple minutes of being there, there was a knock at the door. A friend of mine opened, and a stranger was standing there with a gun. We'd never seen him before. He didn't speak to us at all, and uh, he shot my friend. Uh, the rest of us tried to run out the balcony, and my other two friends jumped over the balcony, and I got shot in the back. And then the guy uh, took the gun on himself and committed suicide. So... There's not really an explanation for it. There's been rumors about it, uh, about him having mental health issues and uh, possibly having issues with noises coming from the apartment upstairs, but there's not really uh, any reasoning as, as to why he did it. What do you remember about that night? I remember everything pretty clearly. Like I said, everything that happened there. And, uh, you know, I remember um, paramedics and police coming in and talking to me. And I was conscious through most of it, and I guess I lost consciousness somewhere in the ambulance and woke up a few days later uh, surrounded by family and friends in the general. Uh, did, could you comprehend at that point what happened and how injured you were? Uh, yeah, I think I can. Like, oddly, oddly, I kind of felt calm, and uh, I knew what happened, and I, I kind of, you know, I played dead, actually, because I wasn't sure... That he, like, I didn't know he had killed himself. I wasn't sure if he was just standing there ready to shoot me again. So I tried not to move or look like I was breathing. And, and then I heard the police come in. So, yeah, I mean, I comprehended everything that was going on. I was just kind of confused and didn't know who or why it was happening. And what were the injuries as a result of this? Um, I had my spleen removed. I had severe damage to my pancreas. Uh, Three-quarters of my left kidney had to be removed and my colon and uh, bowels had to be resected, and then they just had to rebuild my abdominal wall. Talk about your recovery and, and that journey. Um, well, it was pretty tough for a while, um, but, you know, uh, with a lot of help from... I had a, a nurse that came to my house, and uh, she helped me along, and uh, my parents and family and my friends... You know, it wasn't too bad, all things considered. Um, like I said, now I'm back to pretty well 100% health. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't, be, couldn't have done it without the Hamilton General Hospital, that's for sure. Did you ever think you would get back to 100%? Um, I didn't really know, I guess. Um, initially, I don't think anybody knew. But as soon as they had me try to, you know, like all I was really concerned about was would I be able to walk because there was... There still is pellets around my spine, 
and uh, they weren't sure. But, they, you know, they said there wasn't any signs that I'd be paralyzed. So, you know, standing up, I remember everyone was really nervous whether I'd be able to walk, but I was. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, there's not, there's not really any issues since that. And what about prognosis moving forward? You said you still had some pellets. How does this affect your health moving forward? Uh, I don't really know. Uh, <laughs> kind of had differing opinions from doctors, but uh, most e- both of them say that that regardless, um, they're going to be the pellets inside of me will be kind of surrounded by uh, scar tissue and shouldn't cause any damage going forward. So uh, it doesn't seem like there's going to be any issues. When did you realize you were going to be okay? Um, that's a tough to answer, I guess. I guess, I guess as soon as I stood up and, and could walk, you know, I could walk. And, and, I and how, far, how far that, was that after the actual incident? Um, probably four weeks. Really, eh? Three weeks, somewhere in between there. What do you think about when you're lying there in hospital after all of this? Um, I just, you know, for a long time, I was just really confused as to why it happened and just, you know, couldn't believe it. And, and obviously a, a lot of fears about, you know, my recovery and would I be okay initially those first couple of weeks. So I just kind of, a lot of thinking and a lot of fears really, but, you know, it was good to be in that place and to have my family with me. How do you deal with what happened? I mean, your physical health is is fine, and thank God you've made a recovery. But but how does this affect you moving forward? Um, you know, I'm just grateful to be alive, and uh, you know, I, I realize what happened was pretty severe, and it could have gone the other way. And uh, like I said, I'm just grateful. I try to take advantage of that every day. I'm just enjoying. Every day, like I said, getting out, doing new things, and just just being happy and getting out there and enjoying my life every single day. And I try to give back uh, to the hospital, you know, the best way I can right now is with the strides for the general. So, you know, I'm grateful to be able to do that and to help promote uh, what a great job they do down at the general hospital. Are you a different person, Brandon, now than you were before all this happened? Um. Not too much other than, I guess, you know, like I said, in terms of just being, being grateful and, you know, trying to do more things, I guess, try, like I keep busier now, I guess, and just really try to enjoy and make the most of every day. What do you remember most about your time in hospital? Um, just the good care, you know, the, the quick, quick responses and, you know, having my family able to be there with me the whole time and, you know, doctors that really knew what they were talking about coming down and reassuring me and explaining everything that was going on. And, you know, it was just, all, you know, the care that I received from all of the staff, from, you know, even the porters that would come in, I'd build a relationship with after being there so long to the nurses and the doctors. It was just, uh, you know, considering what a terrible situation I was going through, it was, um, it was just great to be at the general. Uh, what about your family? How does this affect them? Um, it was really tough on them also. Um, they're really strong people, though, and, and everyone's doing, doing really well now. It's been a little while, and uh, you know, it's, I guess it's made us stronger, and uh, we've always been a really close family, and you know, that hasn't changed at all. It's, it's probably, we've probably become closer from everything. Does this make you more cautious in life? Does it make you look to the left or right more? Uh, it, initially it did, for sure. Um, I don't know if that was just being in the trauma center and, you know, seeing all the things go on. And uh, I don't know, but 
definitely initially it did. Um, I try to not let that happen. I try to, you know, I'm always, I think I always was a safe person and do things, you know, I think things through and I do things safely. So I try to not let any silly fears stop me from enjoying my life and, and just and just living normally. How do you how do you justify what happened? How do you justify the person that did this to you? Uh, do you ever think why me? Why us? Um, yeah. How, I mean, how, how do you how do you justify this? Yeah. How I, do you not I, how do you not be angry? Well, I definitely was. Uh, I guess I kind of still am, but but I you know I, I understand, and there, there's been no confirmed reports, but apparently the person had mental health issues, just undiagnosed and wasn't really getting a lot of support and help that he needed, I guess. I don't really know. But uh, there's no point in being angry. That's certainly not going to get me anywhere. So I just uh, see the best and uh, forgive the person and uh, just move on. Wow. Uh, What about your friends? How are they coping with... uh, There was four in the apartment when this happened or three? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's uh, doing okay. Um, uh, like I said, all of them have recovered. Uh, Marissa has, she injured her hip after jumping off the balcony and been going through some surgeries, but, uh, she's in recovery and doing well. And, um, uh, so Scott as well, he was shot. Um, he recovered probably fully last year and, you know, he's been moving forward. And, uh, the other gentleman, Steve, he jumped in over the balcony and wasn't injured luckily. And uh, he struggled for a while with everything, but he's definitely seeing the positive in life and moving forward as well. So everyone's doing really well. Wow. It's amazing, though, that it it turned out as well as it did, considering the situation and what potentially could have happened. Do you guys ever get together? Did you ever chat about this? Do you chat about this at Uh, all? Is is there help in, in talking about it with the people that were there? Or are you just uh, trying to move on? There was, yeah, there definitely was, but I think it's been long enough now, and, and uh, we were, we're all past it. We try not to dwell on it any, anymore. So what motivated you to do what you want to do and, and give back this way with this fundraiser? How did, how did this all come about? Uh, well, I did it two years ago as, as soon as I could after being uh, released from the hospital, as soon as I was healthy enough to participate and I found out about it, I wanted to do it. Uh, as soon as I got out of the hospital, I wanted to find a way to to give back some time uh, to them, you know, as a thank you for everything they did for me. And uh, so I participated two years ago. Last year, I wasn't able to. I was just out of the country, so I couldn't participate at the time. And uh, they asked me to be an ambassador this year. So I was grateful to get that opportunity. And, and I plan on participating in fundraising for the general hospital as long as I can. What does sharing your story, like you just have, what does that do for you, and what does it do for the other ones you tell? Um, is well, it, di- is it, it difficult to tell this story again? Um, it's not really difficult. Um, you know, like I said, I've, I've coped with it, and I'm good with everything that's happened, and I've moved on, so I'm fine talking about it. Um, I think it gives everybody an opportunity to really look at um, a different side of your community. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize what their hospitals, their trauma centers, you know, the Hamilton General Hospital, what they really do um, until they need it or until someone in their family needs the hospital. They don't really know what goes on in there. And, uh, you know, the general saves so many lives day in, day out. So I like to be able to talk about it um, as long as, you know, people 
take away that from it and, and really understand, you know, that they've got such a great place in their community and are grateful for that. Because like I said, until you need it, I know I, I never even really considered all the work they do down there, but I'm certainly grateful now and uh, do what I can to give back and help them. Now that it's been, uh, I, I guess, pretty much three years, almost three years now, uh, as you look back at this, what have you learned from this experience? Um, I guess I've just I've just learned to uh, take every day as it comes and be grateful for it and uh, not take anything for granted. Um, enjoy every day and don't waste any because crazy things can happen uh, when you least expect it and so I've definitely learned to be grateful for things and really thankful. And, uh, yeah, just really enjoy every day because you never know when something crazy like this is going to happen to you. Wow. All right, Brandon, give us all the details and all the logistics, the information we need to know about this fundraiser. Yep, so just check out uh, the Hamilton Health Sciences website. And uh, the, it's called the Strides for the General. You can donate. Uh, when you get on there, you can look for the six South Survivors. That's the team that myself and my good friend Joe Hackett um, have formed, and we're going to be raising funds. He was injured in a workplace accident and uh, spent a lot of time at the general, and they, they gave him a ton, of, a ton of quality care, the same as they gave me, and uh, he's doing better than ever. So we're both forming a team here to try to give back to six South survivors. You can donate to us or just donate in general. It doesn't matter. Just sign up and participate in the run. And uh, you don't have to run. You can also, like I said, there's a 5K walk or a 10K run if you want to be competitive about it. But uh, just raise some funds, get the word out, talk to your friends and family, and uh, share it on social media. And it's a great thing. Like I said, we're going to hopefully pass a million dollars raised this year and continue to do that to do that in the future. The family must be proud, although I'm sure that, you know, the crap was scared out of them. They must be incredibly proud of what you're doing now. Uh, yeah, I hope they are. They tell me they are. So, yeah, like I said, we have a very close family, and uh, they've they've been a part of it from the get-go, and they took part in uh, the Strides for the General two years ago. They were right there alongside with me. So, uh, yeah, we have a really close family. I'm really grateful for that. Brandon Clark has been with us, of course, survivor of a gunshot, and, of course, is now paying it all back. Uh, the Hamilton General Hospital Foundation's 8th Annual Strides for the General. And, of course, you can go online and find out more about all of this. It is coming up uh, later on in September. Brandon, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for sharing the story. Congratulations. It's so great to hear that you, uh, you're, you're doing well and have made a full recovery. And uh, kudos to you for giving it back. Congratulations. Thanks a lot. It's my pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate that. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.